Your friends can only handle so much fear. They have a breaking point when adrenaline takes over and they're not just afraid, they're petrified. <coughs> Halloween Haunt at King's Dominion will push you to the limits of fear. Come select nights through October 28th for night rides, demented creatures, and terror you've never felt before. Fear is waiting for you. Save up to $30 on tickets at kingsdominion.com. Hey everybody, this is Penny Lalo Singh, Karma Chuds in, and we have a special edition of Liquid Lunch. I am very excited. We have Barry Brown with us. He is a Pulitzer Prize nominee for journalism, and he's brought us something very special today. And this is his book. When is your book going to be released, Barry? Uh, it's going to be out in, in September. That's just a printout of the book. It'll, of course, be a, a regular, uh, if you pass it over to me, thanks. It'll be a regular, of course, book when it's uh, printed in um, uh, September is when it's going to be out. Um, as you can see, you know, it's, uh, it's a fairly detailed book, uh, basically a brief history of humanity, and uh, covers a lot of ground. Okay, I want to take a look at that while we talk. Um, the first thing I want to do is I just want to uh, let the people know the title of the book is Humanity, The World Before Religion, War, and Inequality. That's right. And I would say right away that um, you've got 17 chapters here, and as you're saying, you're in a sense, you're covering human origins. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, it, it really talks about the beginning of human civilization and covers basically the human story from the beginning right the way through modern times and asks a number of questions. Um, when did things begin? For example, chapter one notes the fact, uh, quote, Scientific American and other journals noting there's actually no evidence of organized warfare anywhere on Earth before about 6,000 years ago. That's like none at all. Individual people, of course, did kill each other. And there is evidence of prehistoric soccer hooligans that would go around and murder people from time to time. But if you look at the long history of humanity, say from Lucy in Africa nearly 3 million years ago until the spread of common war 6,000 to 4,000 years ago, you're really looking at more than 99.99% of human history where we managed to populate the world, create planned cities, advance trade, the arts, medicine, and, and uh, architecture and sciences, uh, all before the first war. Uh, less than 0.01% of human history is in the last 4,000 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I find this really interesting The uh, the because in order for us, let's say, you know, right now, We've got a lot of turmoil on our planet. All of the major governments um, engage in war, or not engage in war, but have a war machine uh, and a military complex, if you will, regardless of whether they're at war. And at this point in human history, it looks like we are just accepting that that war is part and parcel Mm -hmm. of how our civilizations function. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting that you have um, the very beginnings, the world before war, mm-hmm. and then it looks like you've got something here. The next chapter is why we dance, mm-hmm. and what I'm interested in is breaking that down. and And I would like for the people to 
to get a hold of this book because we want to be able to have the tools that we need to move into an era of peace. Mm -hmm. But before we can do that, perhaps we need to find out exactly where we come from. How we from got here. Yeah. And how we got through this. Yeah, Thanks. please. Yeah. Um, that, those are all very good questions. You know, how did we, how did all this start? Because I think what you're asking is, uh, as you can see, the, the book goes through a lot covering how our human identity begins and how civilization begins to spread around the world, how we create language, how We've we create government. symbology in there government. and art and the first writing. Uh -huh, exactly. You know, and how religion evolves and how it changes over time. Uh, in fact, unlike most history books that sort of, you know, human history starts with them, with like Greece, Rome, or ancient uh, Egypt, that's quite far along, actually, in human history. Uh, my book begins much, much earlier. <clears throat> so you were talking about the fact that we tend to think of war, uh, you know, as uh, something that's perpetual and, and needs to be unending, like we have these wars on terror and stuff. But that's because we've forgotten that actually the world is largely, people are actually peaceful. Most of the world remains at peace despite the propaganda. And even more so, people have forgotten that for the vast majority of human history, we actually did not engage in war. Uh, in fact, what was very interesting as I started to uh, move through this history from three million years ago to modern times, mm -hmm. uh, I came across a number of uh, old stories that people thought are kind of allegories and started to realize that they actually represented actual events. And one of these is describing uh, a civilizations that we've had in our history that were not based on aggression and violence no. and war. No. In fact, what's really interesting is that if you look at most civilizations, old human civilizations, old cultures, all of them talk about a world before war. You know, the Greeks talk about before the time of Pandora when she released the evils into the world, and almost everybody has a story like this. And the reason that they have these stories is because the world was, there was a world before we actually went to war. And one of the best-known stories that describes the end of that world is actually the Garden of Eden story in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Tell me more about that. Because okay. in your book, you mm -hmm. talk about how that, that story of Eden was actually the story of us beginning to learn about war. Uh, well, when we went to war the first time, exactly. In other words, it's sort of like this. Um, let's just, for argument's sake, begin with the fact that there was a time before war. Mm -hmm. And so I say to you, you know, uh, really, there was a time in human history before war, but you're kind of a cynic. You're like Homer Simpson. And so you're going, oh, yeah, right. Once there was a time when we were all happy and we all lived in a garden of wonders, and then somebody ticked off God and we got thrown out, okay? That's how the Garden of Eden story gets created. People no longer believe that there was a time before war, and so this, these imaginary things get played over. But if you want to know what the historical root of this story was, if maybe it wasn't an allegory. So in exploring my history, I started to realize that this 6,000-year-old story is actually a fragmented retelling of a, the world's first war. It's not about, at its heart, the Garden of Eden story is not about the creation of the world's first two people. It's about the end of the world's first human civilization that is called the Age of Knowledge, and it's destroyed by what is known as the Kurukshetra War that happens in India about 6,000 years ago. And the small expulsion bit at the end of the Garden of Eden story refers to the dark ages that follow the war. Because after the war, people abandon the cities, they don't want to play together, it's a terribly destructive war. And so everything kind of slumps down until the rise of the second stage of human civilizations, which is the Indus River Valley and uh, Sargon of Mesopotamia and Egypt and China. 
uh, that start to happen about 2000 BC or so. Mm -hmm. So let's look at let's look at the book again. Um, again, we're looking at humanity, the world before religion, war, and inequality. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask you about that part of history. Let's go down to chapter nine: war, religion, and the new world. So. What did we need this for? What, why did we bring this into... I mean, I know that I have an answer, and my answer would be uh, control of, of people. Mm -hmm. So how did, that, how did that happen? Well, it's interesting. The first war, aggressive war, is driven by the same thing that drives all aggressive wars, greed. And as you quite rightly say, control, wanting to have power in your hands and not shirt. According to the ancient text, there's a Game of Thrones. A, a royal family is divided. One half of the family no longer wants to share power with the other half and basically says, in order to, uh, I'm not going to give it up without a fight. And that fight becomes the world's first war where you have something like four million men-at-arms go on a battlefield to settle who's going to rule. And in the end, almost everybody killed is dead. They slaughter each other to such a great extent that nobody gets to rule and the old civilization falls and crumbles. And well, you know, I have another question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as much as we as humanity have been organized into religions, as much as it is that we have been organized as workers, as much as it is that we have been um, uh, severely enslaved, you know, with chains just to that point, mm -hmm. it looks to me like there is a will uh, within us that completely contradicts that. So... How, how how is it that um, the the domination and the control is it is it do you think it's going to run out of steam simply by observing that regardless of how many of how many times we go through this war process or how many mm -hmm. times we go at the end of it we're still uncontrollable? Well, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think we actually have a lot of reason to be hopeful. People are not, by and large, violent or greedy. Actually, they ne they need to be encouraged towards that. And if you do encouragement, marginal people will become psychopathically murderous and psychopathically greedy. But for most part, it's not true. I often give the example that, you know, if people were naturally inclined to violence and, and killing others, and you put them in a place where there were more guns than people and ran constantly media around them telling them the solution to all problems is to kill something, then there would be nobody left alive in the United States because they have more weapons than people they're constantly being encouraged to kill things all the time, and yet, remarkably, except for the occasional borderline people who go out and kill a bunch, most people still live in peace, and they don't go fighting and killing each other, despite the fact they may have 10 or 20 or 100 guns in their home, because people have to be conditioned to go to go kill others. Mm -hmm. um, we're not actually like that. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, because part of the problem is what we've been taught, because what you're talking about is what most people are taught. They're taught constantly, yes, people are violent. We can try and mitigate things if only we have systems to try and solve the problems. But this is actually a total misunderstanding. If it required systems, we would never have built civilization because when human beings set out, we didn't have systems. When human beings first began to leave Africa, we didn't have technologies, we didn't have religions, we had no philosophy, we had no politics. What is the secret of human success? The secret of human success is that we like to party. Yeah. Okay. We like to share genes and information more than others. What made us successful when we went out was only simple human nature, the desire to meet other people and share knowledge that we've collected with others. Mm -hmm. That was all we had. Mm -hmm. 
And that should give us great hope, because all we have to do really is default back to who we are naturally. We don't need to create something new. We just have to have the attitude and the will to try and find ways to cooperate rather than fight. There's always a solution to doing that if you want one. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so let's get to that, that topic. So your last, uh, one of your last chapters, chapter 16, is the end of today and the utopia of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? How do we get back to peace? How do we teach um, the culture of sharing or the culture of giving or the culture of nonviolence at this point? Well, again, like, you I, know, I, what I, is this chapter about? Okay. Well, I take a little bit of issue with your premise that it needs to be taught. My contention is you don't need to teach it. You just need to encourage it. People are naturally peaceful. In fact, when you think about it, okay, Human beings only have three kinds of relationships. You and I can only have one of three relationships. We can be friends, we can be neutrals, or we can be enemies. Mm -hmm. Now, with either of those three things, you're going to find the evidence. So if early human beings were uh, enemies, you would see war weapons among the prehistoric tools. There aren't any. They're hunting tools, but no war weapons. You would see walled villages, defensive walls around villages and cities. In fact, you don't see any defensive walls around any villages till maybe four to five thousand years ago. And again, remembering humanity starts maybe two to three million years ago or earlier, depending on what you want to mm-hmm. call it. Okay. If we were neutrals, then you'd see, uh, you know, some people related, not others, and you would have different, uh, many, many language groups. Instead, everybody's related to everybody, and all the modern languages come from about four original languages, and those come from even earlier ones where there was just single languages. So, Peoples, even if you go back 400,000 years ago, you can find evidence of long-distance trade in southern Africa, long before the Homo sapiens, our branch of the family, began. We're doing trade. So See, human, human instincts really, is to trade, not to This fight. book and this idea really is revolutionary and really is something we haven't thought about. We are definitely making that assumption. We are definitely making that assumption that all throughout our human history that we've been fighting and that that is just something that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I want to ask you about, as we were talking earlier about a civilization in the Indus Valley that was uh, large and complex with all kinds of aspects of civilization and wasn't warring. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Um, what's interesting is that what happens after the first war so this war, known as the Kurukshetra War, happens in India, according to the ancient texts, about 6,000 years ago. Okay. Now, the really interesting thing is, for anybody who actually wants to look into this, you will find that while this war is recorded in the text, and as different programs you'll see will refer to, to tales from that war, um, there's no evidence. There, there is no direct evidence that this war ever happened. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, no bodies, no cities, none of that stuff. So why... Do I make a big deal about this war and its importance in my book? Okay. As I point out after explaining all of what's written about this war, um, there's no evidence. But what we do have is a big mystery. We know from the scientific evidence that there was no war before about 6,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and there, there must have been a first war at some point. And assuming that it was not just a local thing, that it must have been a very important event because it changed human history. Mm-hmm. From a time when there wasn't, when the idea of people killing each other in large numbers did not exist, mm-hmm. to a time when mass slaughter of people by people suddenly did. 
mm-hmm. where the world changed mm-hmm. and it was no longer the same way. Generation Eden, everybody lived before war and then people who come after, when this is suddenly possible. It's just like in the modern world. You know, like people who grew up uh, back some years ago, they didn't have all these terrorism things. You know, they didn't expect that. And now people are growing up with this as a normal thing in the world. Okay, and the idea that there wasn't, they don't even understand what it might be like to have a time before war or terrorism because it just seems natural, like mm-hmm. having that Starbucks at your cor- at the corner. Okay? Mm-hmm. But that wasn't always the case. So after the war, what you see is the arrival of a second civilization in India that has, that everything about this society is built to reject the causes of the war. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because the causes of the war were the was a hierarchy, divisions in society, were put, putting some people over others by birth, mm-hmm. having uh, religious leaders who were telling people how they should live and what they should do, and who had much more control than they should have, and a lot of other problems of social breakdown. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what you see in the Indus Valley society that follows at this time, around 2000 B.C. or so, mm-hmm. 3000, 2000 B.C., is it has no armies. Mm-hmm. No war weapons, no evidence that ever went to war or was attacked in a thousand years. It has no temples. There are almost 17,000 towns and villages and not a single temple anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay? No palaces, no government buildings. And what's particularly curious about this is that the, their neighbors in Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, they have palaces, they have temples, they have warriors and armies, but they don't here. Why? And all of the houses are made so everybody lives equally. Mm-hmm. Why are they doing this? The only reason that people do this is in reaction to something else. If you have a few of them, that's one thing. But if you have none, mm-hmm. it's because you just had a bad experience and you're swearing it off. Like, if you look in, in sort of contemporary times, when do we have big disarmament periods? After really bad wars. After Napoleon, people wanted to go disarming. After World War I, they wanted to go disarming. If you are an alcoholic, after a really bad bout, you decide to swear it off. So in the Indus Valley, you see they've sworn off all these things. They have none of them. And the only possible reason that they could be like that is in reaction to the war. And then there's a few other things from the Indus Valley that seem to suggest this even more strongly, which I put in my book. Okay, so you say, okay, now, in, as far as I know, in, in, the, in the history from, from Buddhism and other uh, in, uh, spiritual traditions in India, we're told about this place it's called Uddiyana, and it was this great city. Now, my question, though, is this. Um, how did this war? How did this idea of war start? Did this start with, uh, like, it's insanity? So would this have started with somebody who was actually like insane, like a person? No, again, it's like okay. Because uh, let's start off with something else. We wouldn't kill on in a mass level because we would, you know, understand our sense of equality. Or did this whole idea of war start? with the dehumanization of other humans and the separation of us humans into the, into groups where we were not respecting each other as equals? A little bit of both, really. Um, in order to have a war, you must have social divisions. So obviously social divisions have happened before the war can, can occur, and those social divisions have to be bad enough that people are willing to go to war to fight about it. But when people are going to war for the first time, they can't know what's going to happen because nobody's had a war before, mm-hmm. okay? They think it's going to be short and sweet and it's not going to be that bad. But what's really interesting is when the Civil War begins, because you've got this one uh, king or prince, basically, on one side, who says, I'm not going to share power. And if you want it, you're going to have to fight me. And he refuses all offers of peace. 
because he thinks he's going to beat the other ones if they try and fight him. And it ends up that he has more men than the other side, so he's confident of victory. But what's interesting is this. In the text, it mentions that before the war begins, both sides agree on the rules for an ethical war. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, why would people agree on rules to an ethical war? Why would they? And the rules, by the way, are very interesting. They're sort of like schoolyard rules. Mm -hmm. Can't hit somebody when they're down. Equal matched weapons. Don't mm -hmm. hit, uh, you know, animals and things. And most importantly, don't attack spectators. Yeah. Why spectators? What these refer to, and the fact that this text talks about well-trained armies with battle maneuvers and, and highly trained skills. They talk about those things, but the texts don't talk about earlier periods of war conquest. Mm -hmm. So what must have happened is there must have been these huge Olympic-sized war games yeah. that followed those rules. Yeah. And that had spectators. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And so initially when they go to war, you've got all these people who are used to fighting war games where occasionally somebody gets killed, but that's not the idea. They just surrender at some point. Yeah. Right? So they're all expecting something like that. And what happens is mass slaughter. 24 hours a day it finally de degenerates into just into killing that, yeah. and killing and killing until after 18 days 4 million men are dead. Yeah. With just using ordinary weapons. And this was the first war. And this was the first real war. Yeah. And I think that it would just take one uh, thin uh, hair of us moving away from our human values. And I mean, it, without without those instilled in us in the first place, then th we don't have that as a guide. And I think that worrying or expressing uh, very uh, your uh, extreme emotions is fine. It's when every when we have mass killing that's a problem. Um, I remember seeing uh, a documentary. It's called uh, "The Goddess Remembered." And it goes all over the world looking for pre-patriarchal uh, societies and cultures. And they, there's a few of them that are still left where um, the women are the ones that are, are, are governing the agriculture and the hunting and everything. And they showed this one place in Africa where they have, uh, if there's a dispute between a couple of villages, then, uh, and things start to get heated then the grandmothers say, okay, then let's just have a war. Sounds like we may as well have a war. But this is how they do it. The, um, the African men, uh, uh, one gets, sits on the other one's shoulders, mm -hmm. and they get all dressed up in all these feathers, and it's all very elaborate. And the ones on top have, their, have sharpened uh, metal, like, mm -hmm. that could scratch mm -hmm. on the end of their fingers. And then what happens is the grandmothers let them get all riled up and then let them move close to each other and kind of claw at each other a little bit. And then as soon as it becomes whatever, then these little grandmothers with sticks kind of put them back and they all go back. Yeah, and, then they're, and then they're done. And you see, the thing is, is that the energy of conflict is, can lead to solutions. The energy of intensity is not the energy of war or killing or, you know, um, I think we get very confused with um, uh, what it means to be a, a, a human who is really engaged and feels strongly and a human that would actually harm or actually take a life. Um, so I think that's a distinction that we're not making.
Well, I think there's a number of different things. One, you're quite right. Um, war, um, war begins as a game uh, in all the ancient cultures. Here's, uh, you may have seen the movie Drumline. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there was a movie about Drumline, which is about drummers in universities, American universities. Uh, this is a drumline actually in Africa. And a lot of times, yes, the ancient cultures would do that, just like in the movie and in the real life. The, the war would be between you drumming on the other person. It would be done for symbolic things because it was, it was a game. It wasn't meant to kill. It was just meant to establish whatever you had. In fact, the word competition, a lot of times today, you know, um, people think that we, the, the, it's unrealistic to think that you can't be competitive in the world because people are competitive by nature. Yes, we are, but it depends on how you think of competition. Uh, the original meaning of the word competition does not mean I'm going to poke your eyes out in order to get ahead. The word competition comes from the root in Latin competere, mm -hmm. which means to work together, to, mm -hmm. to come together. All right, Probably so competition. to learn how to complement. Well, no, it means to come together, to work together. Yeah. So competition is like together we're competing with each other to improve things overall, not against each other. We're improving for the general health of contributing each of what we have. I find it very inspiring. And, well, that's what the original word comes from, and that's what the original, you know, you talk about human culture. Okay, so where does human culture, as we know it, our understanding of it, really begin? Okay. So the human identity can really be traced back to about 100,000 years ago when Homo sapiens first leave Africa. Mm -hmm. um, we know that around this time, we start to uh, form larger groups, share more information with others, and begin to populate the world. But if you ask the question, why, mm -hmm. what changes 100,000 years mm -hmm. ago, most people, they, they haven't got a reason yet. Yeah. My book offers a reason. And the reason I suggest the change that happens is that we start to have balance. What changes in the human body and evolution between 100,000 years ago and earlier is that we get good balance like we have today, which is the system behind the ear mm -hmm. that orients us, our place in the world, and tells our brain where we are. Mm. Why is this important? Why does the fact that we have a good sense of balance, and our earlier ancestors like Neanderthal, who mm -hmm. came before us and died out, uh, why is that important and how did that help us survive? And more importantly, how did that make us human in the way we think of it today? Mm. Okay. Our ancestors, Neanderthals, didn't have good balance, so they kind of all looked like square bob, square bob sponge pants, you know? Or yeah. Square, yeah. Okay? Because the mass distribution, they had to be yeah. short and stocky to make sure they didn't fall over. Yeah. But with us, we have a good balance. So now, when I say to you today, center yourself or balance yourself, mm -hmm. our ancestors wouldn't think of that because they didn't have a center that moved with them. Mm. All of a sudden, each of us have this own individual center that moves around with us. So now this sense of individuality that's so important to the modern human identity begins to emerge that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. In addition to having balance individual, it means now we can go out in the world anywhere we want. Neanderthal and others had to be risk averse because they didn't have good balance. So they settled parts of the world, but not all of it. With us, if we want to swing on a, a vine like Tarzan, we want to crawl up, you know, climb up on a tree and jump across, we can do that, jump on a log and paddle across the ocean. We don't have to be risk ocean. adverse. No, because mm -hmm. we can adjust our balance with us. So. Freedom and individuality, the two key components of human identity, come about because we have balance. Mm -hmm. And socially, this becomes expressed with the idea of sharing stuff, mm -hmm. building larger communities, sharing more things with more people, constructing things, because balance becomes the highest value in human culture. And so mm -hmm. it's constantly expressed, the scales of justice, balance in society, balance of this and that. 
And the reason that this becomes such a central theme in human civilization is because we gained physical balance, really good physical balance, mm -hmm. about 100,000 years ago. Wow. Well, this, this brings up another contributor to war, and that is scarcity mm -hmm. and the idea that there isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, where did we ever come up with that? Uh, on a planet that is constantly producing food, it is constantly in a state of bounty and it's constantly in a state of, of giving. And I'm wondering how did we decide and when did we decide that there wasn't enough? And to this very day, we are still doing it. I don't believe that population control is something that we need to do to keep ourselves in balance with the planet. I, I'm, I'm quite certain that um, the planet is producing enough food for everyone and that it, it is simply uh, a matter of distribution. So um, how are we going to get to that place where, see, I'm very interested in how, in like today, bringing it up to date, mm -hmm. this whole history, how do we examine these elements that brought us into war and how do we look at things like scarcity or inequality mm -hmm. or, or all of that so that we can clear this and stop believing that war is part of our human culture when I believe that your book is here to prove that that is not true. Absolutely. And yeah, as well as the book coming out in, in September, uh, I'm going to be doing some speaking engagements and we're also going to be uh, fundraising to create a documentary series. So anybody who's watching this who's interested in getting in touch with me um, through the information on the screen uh, and follow up with this. But going back to your question, they're very good questions. Um, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, uh, there's enough here for people's needs, just not for their greeds. Mm -hmm. And um, I really think that there's not a big uh, magical solution to the problem. The solution is simply a change of attitude. You know, we look like I, here in Toronto, so I walk along the street, as I'm sure you do, and you see sometimes hungry homeless people uh, asking for spare change. And 99 out of 100 people or more walk by. Don't even look at them, treat them like they don't even exist. May as well be rubbish on the street, banana peel. Okay. And most of these people have money, or at least enough to spare. If they wanted to, they could give a little something. Now, I try to, when I can, give something. I can't give to everybody, obviously. But as a matter of course, I do it. Because I think it's important that I share what I have with others mm -hmm. and not think of only of myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's basically the scene in the world. You know. If we come to the point where we realize that it's important to be friendly to other people and show respect, mutual respect, and that means everybody. It's not just about respect where you think that, oh, I'm enlightened, uh, but I'll deferentially not treat you as badly as I think you are because you're ignorant, like because you believe in certain things that I don't. And that, that goes on both sides. You have, and that's example, kind of a move from tribalism to the nuclear family, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't because even put it that way because it crosses all, all stripes and all organizations. Mm -hmm. So you have, for example, just as a general thing, uh, you know, uh, people on the left who, who you go and say everybody on the right, they're all ignorant, religious, uh, whatever. And on the right, they think everybody's faggy, transvestite, communist, whatever. Um, as long as you're demonizing the other side, and you're forgetting that we're all part of a human family and that we've always been different and everybody has different attitudes and some but people like others, some people don't. But that's the thing, the human family has been, it's, it's lost. Well, we it's, have the nuclear family, so who do you care about? You care about your family. So if you're walking down the street and there's your cousin on the street, well, you are going to help them. We have been, 
we have been taught to help our families. My we family have, we have not been taught that the human family, and in some cases, we haven't. In some case, individualism mm -hmm. has taken over even the nuclear family, and now it's it's everyone mm -hmm. for themselves. And no, brother, I'm sorry, you're supposed to make it on your own. Yeah. That that even happens. So how do we get to the point where when we walk down the street, we realize that that person is you, yeah, yeah. that that is... Well, I, I, I challenge your premise to a certain extent. I think for actually most of human history, we were taught the fact that, you know, was that famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, A Stranger is Just a Friend You Haven't Met Yet. In fact, the word stranger and visitor root from the word that also means guest and friend and stuff like that. Um, and as far as family goes, uh, speaking as someone whose family never really helped me at all and always depended on the, the kindness of strangers and friends, uh, I don't necessarily agree with the fact you look out for your family. Um, but again, it comes, I, I think yeah. it comes down to the idea that um, you've got different people trying to push agendas. Either that everybody should just be on their own or we should all care about others. But uh, one way or another, people are being pushed into these things. And the reality is you can't really push people into anything. People are responsible for their own lives. However, it's, ob it's incumbent upon us and, and it's our obligation that if things are going well for us and we see others who need some help, to try and help them. But it's a friendship offering. If somebody becomes dependent, then they lose their initiative and you don't want to make people dependent. It's like the notion of comforting someone. So, yeah, you know, we've got to the point today with the idea of comfort of people out there, safe spaces, and everything that might hurt or offend somebody has got to be avoided at all costs. Why? I mean, life is about learning how to live with other people. Sometimes you run into attitudes you don't like. How, how weak-skinned are you? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, it doesn't mean that we can't have compassion, but the idea of comfort, for example, is not about, ooh, let me mollycoddle you. The word comfort means comforte, to return strength to someone. Mm -hmm. If someone is hurting or they're, they're in a bad situation, you want to return strength to them so they can help themselves and become strong. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what you want to do. Now, not everybody can just have a magic wand wave over and say, here's a little money or a little something, and their life changes. Mm -hmm. But you want to encourage them to make them feel they are worthy. You don't want to make but them dependent. But our world is backwards. Least, you know, we're yeah. trying, we create dependency right. instead of empowerment. Exactly. Well, listen, Barry, I think that uh, we could talk about this for a long time. Probably. <laughs> okay. And I really hope that you come back Thank onto that much. channel so we can talk about this again. Thank you. And if people are going to be able to hear from you because you're going to be doing some speaking engagements yes, in yes. Toronto. Yep. And you're also and really interested in somebody who wants to do what? Well, we'd like to turn this into a documentary series, so I've already started talking with some producers about it. We're going to be looking for a director uh, to do this. Uh, and yes, I've done a couple of speaking engagements around town. I'm going to be doing more possibly out of town as well. Well, this is great, Barry, because... People want reality. People want information. People are learning uh, so much. And there's so much interest in the origins of, of humanity and Thanks. so much interest in where we came from because so much has been hidden from us. Yeah. So I think this is an amazing history book. Thank you. Um, which is not, not only just a history book, but it may well be... Uh, a guidebook for the future. <laughs> well, thank you very much. When it comes out in September, check for it and you can pick it up for yourself. Yeah. Thank well, you so much for thank being you very with much. us. All right. Thanks, Benny. Good to be here. All right. That's it for uh, this episode of Liquid Lunch. 
So thank you very much for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back with uh, more great guests and more information for you the next time. Have a great day. It's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.